Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to a history of Europe. Key battles... The Battle of Civitate, Part 3 of 4. In the previous two weeks, I described the history of Italy from the fall of the Western Roman Empire until the year 1025. At this point, the Byzantine Empire was in the ascendancy in southern Italy, but still faced almost constant conflict with the various Lombard dukes, as well as the Arabs, the Emperor in Germany, and the Pope. Also, the first Norman mercenaries were beginning to have a significant effect on the fighting between the various sides vying for power, happy to switch sides as it suited them. I will say more about the origins of the Normans in the next podcast, on the Battle of Hastings. It's enough to say here that they were descendants of Viking raiders who in the early 9th century settled in a region of northern France that came to be called Normandy. After only two or three generations, they had adopted the French language and faith and culture of Christendom. Regarding the Normans in Italy, we are fortunate to have the works of three Norman chroniclers. They are Amatus, a Benedictine monk at the Abbey of Monte Cassino, William of Apulia, and Goffredo Malaterra. Well, each have their thoughts together, they help to give us a good picture of events. The earliest reported date for the Normans in southern Italy is the year 999, when a group of them, on their way back from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, ended up briefly helping the Duke of Salerno against an attack from Arab pirates. When they and the other pilgrims arrived home, they told of the chaotic situation in Italy and the opportunities that were available to earn money there fighting. The first recorded Norman mercenaries in the region is the already mentioned Battle of Cannae in 1017. At this time, numbers were small, but over time, more made the trip down to seek their fame and fortune. Strictly speaking, they were not all Normans, since some came from other parts of France. But they are all called Normans here for ease of reference. They were all a new type of soldier, called a knight, who wore heavy armour and rode on horseback. One key to their success was the use of the stirrup, a technology recently brought over from Asia which allowed a rider to better control the horse and so use them more easily for fighting. Thanks to this, spears could now be used not just as throwing weapons but also as lances to ram into the enemy in cavalry charges. With this new tactic came the high war saddle with its protective pommel. 
Each knight also carried a sword or mace for hand-to-hand combat. As for armour, they wore a coat of mail reaching from neck to knee with full-length sleeves. This was their most expensive piece of equipment, except for the horses, which were now specially bred for their carrying and staying power and the momentum they could engender in the charge. All these changes meant that knights had a much greater advantage over foot soldiers than before. At the turn of the millennium, this new caste was open to anyone who could afford the horse and required equipment, but over time they developed stricter rules as to who could join. The basic fighting unit was called the Conroy, of 20 to 30 men, who would be identified by their individual spear-mounted flag. Discipline and generalship was generally good, with such units well able to make controlled charges, to wheel, to turn and even to retreat in a feigned flight. On their journeys, individual knights were usually accompanied by one or multiple squires who carried out tasks as required. They were charged with looking after the knight's shield and armour, help dress him in armour, look after the horses, help fight if required, and if needed ensure his master an honourable burial if he were to die. A squire who proved his skill and loyalty in battle may have the opportunity to be promoted to knighthood. The Normans travelled round in groups of knights and their squires, and worked for whichever party they could gain the most profit. Different groups therefore occasionally ended up fighting against each other, but they always saw themselves as a distinct people. As news spread in Italy of their bravery and military skills, they became in great demand. By the 1020s, Norman bands were disseminated through the peninsula. The largest and most influential was led by a certain Reynolf. Originally, in Italy, on his way to Jerusalem, Reynolf ended up as a mercenary and was one of the survivors of the Battle of Cannae. In 1030, in return for his military services to the Lombard Duke of Naples, he was presented with the former Byzantine stronghold of Aversa, a town just north of Naples. This way he became the first titled Norman in Italy as Count of Aversa, and the first to marry into Italian aristocracy, namely the Duke's sister. This set an example to the many rootless groups of Normans who roamed the hills and highways, leading a life of freebooting and brigandage. From 1030, more of their leaders, according to the historian John Julius Norwich, set themselves up in fixed and fortified settlements in imitation of Renolf, and devoted their energies to carving out a permanent territory of their own. From the moment that the Normans became landowners, their whole attitude begins to change. Not only towards their neighbours, but towards the country itself. Italy is no longer just a battlefield, no longer a land to be plundered and despoiled, but one to be appropriated, developed and enriched. It is in fact their home. Meanwhile, in Rome, in October 1032, the newly elected Pope was Benedict IX, the twenty-year-old son of the Count of Tusculum and nephew of the two previous Popes. Benedict had few qualifications for the papacy, 
other than his family connections, and the sources are as critical of him as they were of John Twelfth, with more stories of rape, murder and general depravity. Such activities did not endear himself to the people of Rome, and he faced two serious local uprisings. In the first, he was briefly forced out of the city, but returned with the help of Emperor Conrad II, who felt it his Christian duty to travel down to Italy and restore the Pope. One important soldier to fight for the Emperor during his trip to Italy was Renolf. In return, in 1037, the Emperor confirmed Renolf's possession of Aversa, thus bolstering the Count's rise to position of major landowner, aristocrat and one of the most powerful military leaders in Italy. Another vital and essential step had been taken to what was now the Norman objective, domination of the South. In the next year, 1038, there were new opportunities for the Normans to gain fame and fortune. The Byzantines were gathering an invasion force to retake Sicily and recruited a number of Norman mercenaries. Among them were two brothers of a family who were to become very influential, William and Drogo Houtville, who had both recently made the journey down from Normandy. The expedition to Sicily was led by the most capable Byzantine general of the period, George Maniakes, and also included a contingent of Varingians, including Harold Hadrada, who would later lead a failed invasion of England in 1066. The first two years of the campaign went well, and the eastern half of the island was captured. However, although Maniakes was a great leader on the battleground, his fearsome temper led to a conflict with both the Admiral of the Byzantine Navy and his Lombard allies, and he was recalled to Constantinople. His replacement proved ineffective, and soon the Byzantines were fast losing the territory they had fought so hard to win. First they were driven off the island, and things got worse when revolts broke out all around the southern mainland. The Lombards, who had fought for the Byzantines in Sicily, turned on their former allies and were joined by a group of Normans, including Reynolf and the Houtville brothers. One important step was persuading the citizens of the fortified town of Melfi to defect from the Greeks and let them in. Already heavily fortified and now almost impregnable on its Apennine hilltop, this town constituted the perfect mountain stronghold. From there, the Norman knights, still highwaymen at heart, could spread out in all directions, raiding and pillaging to their heart's content. Then they could return there with their plunder, immune from reprisals. Further fortifications soon fell to the Norman-Lombard alliance, forcing the Byzantine governor, Ducaianos, to hurry from Bari, gathering all the forces he could muster to confront this very serious threat. On March the 16th, 1041, he sighted the main body of the Norman army near the banks of the Olivento, a little stream running just below the town of Venosa. The story goes that prior to the battle, Ducaianos sent an envoy to the Lombard Norman army to give him a choice of returning to Lombard territory or to fight the numerically superior Byzantine army. 
In response, the Norman knight, who had been holding the reins to the envoy's horse, suddenly turned and struck the unfortunate animal, killing it with one blow. The shock caused the envoy to faint, but the Normans, having restored him to his senses, gave him a better horse on which to return to his general. The message brought back was clear. The battle was on. The Battle of Olivento, fought the next morning, ended in the total defeat of the Greeks. Many of them were killed, including nearly the entire Varingian contingent, and a large number were drowned as they tried to cross the swollen waters of the Olivento. The Norman victory was followed up with further successes, most notably a victory at Cannae. On the same field they suffered one of their rare defeats 23 years before. Their general, William of Houtville, though suffering from a high fever in typical Norman spirit, once battle commenced, couldn't resist charging down the slope into the fray to lead his men to victory. Humiliation was complete for the Byzantines when Ducianus's replacement, the son of the great Basil Boyanes, who had achieved so much a few years ago, was captured by the Normans. Lashed to his horse, he was paraded in triumph through the streets of Melfi. With Greek authority disintegrating in southern Italy, the Normans were keen to claim as much territory as they could for themselves. To legitimise their gains, they needed to be given titles by the Lombard aristocracy. Their ally, the Duke of Salerno, obliged, giving William the title of Count of Apulia and sharing among another twelve Norman leaders all lands of the south, not only those territories that had already been conquered, but also those that might in future fall into their hands. Now there was no longer any doubt about Norman intentions. Fighting would continue until the last Greek had been driven from the peninsula. Some Lombards, realising that all they had achieved was to end up replacing one enemy with an even worse one, broke off with the Normans. But it was too late. The men from the north were here to stay. Within a few years, South Italy had undergone a radical change. From now on, we hear little more about Lombard nationalism. Normans already held effective power of Apulia and would continue to expand their power. Next week, in the final part of the Battle of Civitate, I will conclude the story of the Norman rise of power and describe its consequences not only for Italy, but for the whole of Europe. I have a couple of announcements to make about the website for the podcast, which is www.historyeurope.net. I've put a post on there with a list of forthcoming episodes, the next 11 battles after the Battle of Civitate, so you have a better idea what's going to be coming up in the near future. I have a provisional list of about 44 battles I'd like to cover in all, uh, but that could well change depending on how the research goes. Um, I've also now got two pages on the website for books. Um, There's still the book review page, but I've also got a separate bibliography, which is a list of all of the books which I've uh, referred to, which I've used um, while making the podcast. Um, on top of that, I've also created a quiz um, 
for you to have a look at. This is based on the first battle which I did, the Battle of Marathon. So don't think of this as some kind of examination and thing. It's uh, more of a fun quiz just to test how much you rem- remember from that first battle. And one final thing I've now added to the website is a button to donate to the podcast. Of course, the podcast, like any other, incurs costs such as web hosting, the purchase of books and other things. So if you have any spare pennies to help contribute towards those costs, uh, it would be greatly appreciated. One way you could help out for free is by adding a review for this podcast to iTunes. There was one interesting comment on a recent review on iTunes. Uh, It described the name of the podcast as a misnomer, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that uh, on the website www.historyeurope.net to say whether you think the name of the podcast is, is a bit misleading. I never meant it to be a military history as such. Obviously the battles are a key part of the podcast, but not the only part, and probably over time it's evolved a bit where I concentrate more on the politics and the personalities behind the history, a bit, little bit more than the military side. So as I say, I'd be very interested to hear your thoughts on that at www.historyeurope.net. So thank you very much for listening and until next time for the final part of the Battle of Civitate. Goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.